what you do is you start to you start out with five you know casting vendors that maybe Mr. Joe showed me, and then each time you quote a new casting vendor with one you already have, you, yep. know, you start to build. Oh, the prices are roughly the same. I'm going to buy half from this guy and half from that guy and test out a new vendor. And you just keep working that testing out a new vendor. So I'd say start with one or two core suppliers and then just start slowly every time you quote a piece, whether it's plastic injection or whatever, try a new supplier, try a new part, see if it comes in with the same quality. Sometimes you get surprised, lower price, better quality. Uh, And that goes for the UK, Mexico, Canada, anywhere we sourced. We did a kind of a risk mitigated approach to branching out a little bit each time. Hello, everyone. My name is Chris Powers, and I want to thank you for joining me on the Fort Podcast today. This show is an open-ended discussion and journey covering real estate, business, entrepreneurship, and investing. I would love to hear from you by tweeting me at Fort Worth Chris on Twitter. And if you've enjoyed this show, I would be super grateful if you would subscribe on Apple or Spotify or whatever platform you're listening on. And if on Apple, if you would leave a rating and review, it'd mean a lot. And last but not least, you can check out all these episodes on YouTube. Hey guys, it's Chris. Thank you so much for joining me today on The Fort. I have my friend Josh Schultz here today, and we talk small business ops. Josh has made a career really focusing on improving small businesses. And today we go deep on how ops work what things go wrong in businesses, what things go right in businesses, and ultimately how businesses grow and thrive. So thank you so much for continuing to join me on this journey, and I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Josh, welcome to the show today. Thanks for having me, Chris. Thanks for coming up to Fort Worth. Um, Let's just dive right into it. Can you just give us some background on who you are and what brought you to today? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, my name, you know, obviously most people know Josh Schultz. I'm from upstate New York, Syracuse. Uh, when you say New York, everybody just assumes the city, but uh, <laughs> it's very different upstate. Spent most of my life there and uh, was a finance guy at first. Went, you know, tried to, to run that route and the recession hit pretty hard back in 2008 and getting a job was hard and I didn't have the contacts or anything. So um, spent five years doing a lot of modeling, a lot of math stuff. You know, it's all I read. I lived, breathed finance, but uh, just couldn't make it in the to where I wanted to go. So my dad owned a fastener business. I jumped on board with that. And uh, in the summer, he invited me in, basically said, uh, why don't you help me out? For a lot of interesting problems. And that really is where I learned SMB. I learned operations. My dad taught me a ton. Eventually kind of started my own side business there, doing uh, custom parts. And my dad and I grew that together. And then we went down to Mexico and started another one down there and, and grew that together. And wrote software and machine learning and eventually just sold the whole thing off in 2019. And so that was kind of my trial by fire. And it's pretty much where I learned everything I know inside of that Echo Bowl. Yeah, you had a cool quote when we talked earlier and you just said a lot of the success that you have, you owe to your dad. Yeah, absolutely. He never finished college. So it's kind of one of those classic, you know, my grandfather was a milkman, didn't finish school. My dad never finished college. Uh, He just started working in the warehouse in this fastener company at 18. And uh, but brilliant tactician, I mean, just can really operate uh, pretty much anything. So he's always run businesses. I grew up with my mom and my dad, always running small businesses, large businesses, refurb projects, you know, re- they restored a barn for like 10 years. I used to do my homework in, uh, in one of the lofts of this old barn while they were there, you know, just repairing and, you know, redoing foundational stuff. So grew up with that and, and working with it. And I, I didn't know him much growing up. I mean, he was working a lot. 
Yeah. So it was really cool to have an opportunity for about 10 years to be able to start to work with him, get to know him, and then spend every day with him, which is an opportunity I wouldn't trade for the world. And in that, uh, became excellent friends, but also really good business partners. Yeah, I mean, taught me everything I know about like the the psychology, the selling, you know, how, how to read situations, how, how to know when to quote higher, how to streamline things. I mean, he's got a systematic mind just like me. I, I get it from him. And so, he, he, you know, I, I've learned, you know, Six Sigma and all that stuff, but it was all in the day-to-day practice of watching him make decisions that weren't intuitive. And why'd you do that? And then him saying, whoa, in a year, this is going to happen. And I'm like, oh, that's genius. All right. Yeah, yeah I love it. Okay. So I want to get into it because that's a big part of the story is, is joining that company. Uh, but you are an operational kind of I don't know, guru is what I would is how I would describe <laughs> it from my seat. You said that uh, when you were growing up, you were the kid that made the toys but never played with the toys. <laughs> yeah, um, so that's kind of like a family joke, right? I, I used to build Legos, and my brother uh, Danny would play with them. I mean, it just went to everything. I would build tree forts, but never hung out in them. Yeah. Uh, I just love the idea of of the building, right? The the Theseus ship where you you get it and then you make it a little better and you make it a little better. And yeah, I had no interest in playing with them. So what was the state of the company when you joined your dad? And were you excited to join? Were you like, I'm just going to do this for the summer? Like, <laughs> let's, what was, what was like going in there? Yeah, I was not excited to join. So, you know, one of the things like Moses Kagan talks about it, how, how he had this step up, right? He had his dad and, and a lot of people are always looking to do what somebody else is doing and they ignore the kind of the level up that is right in front of them. So for me, that was a fastener business, but because it was in front of me my whole life, it was the last thing I wanted to do. Um, so I just tried to avoid it. I wanted to do finance. And when he asked me, yeah, I thought it was a summer thing. I just wanted to go in and get out, basically didn't get an internship. And so I was looking to just make some money in the summer. Once I got into it, I realized, Hey, there's a lot of interesting problems here. This is the same stuff as finance, if not more interesting, nobody's paying attention to it. I can use the same energy, the same intelligence, and, and maybe go a lot further in this field. So, uh, once I was in, I, my second MBA semester, uh, or year, I kind of worked part-time, didn't do much. I, I did a lot of uh, creating the operational manual and documenting the process, which helped me get to know the business inside and out. And when I came out, I started doing sales. And so spent uh, a couple of years, basically, he said, you know, I, I've got this small business. It was about $2 million business. There was three guys, my uncle in the warehouse, um, a guy I called my uncle, who's my dad's partner, just he was in the hospital when I was born. So he was his partner inside sales. And then my dad just did everything else. It was about two mil. And they were selling fasteners. And my dad basically said, there's a ton of opportunity in custom parts. I don't have time to chase it. I can't afford you ruining the reputation of Alliance Fastener. So we're going to create a new name. You can use the warehouse and you got to make it work. And if you make it work, then great. And if you don't, go back to finance. Yeah. So that was kind of the start. Okay, so, w- but when you got there, everything that you did, is that what he wanted you to do? Or that's just like naturally what you gravitated towards starting to write down process and kind of like get things documented and... For for that first year, because I was in school, he really didn't give me anything. I just showed up and uh, I'm a very systems, just naturally systems oriented. And so the fact that I didn't know, I needed to like write it down to figure it out. Yep. So that was just something I did. Um, and then I'll, And then from that, you see every department, you see every opportunity. And then my mind just started coming up with these ideas. So I just started chasing them down. But when I went officially full-time after the MBA ended, it, I was sales. So I was out on the road a lot, uh, just doing cold calling, showing up at places, flying around, whoever would answer an email or a phone call. I come. F- I did a lot of sales before that. I, I did all the, the bad ones. I did uh, insurance, I did telemarketing, and I did um, 
gym sales. So all the ones people hate, like I was that guy. So saying no to me is is useless. Like I I really don't care. <laughs> so <laughs> I got uh, I got forged in the fire there. So for me, just going out and and selling, uh, and then at night I, I was be working on processes and systems and just figuring out how could this work better? How could we stop making the same mistake over and over? How can we do this once and compound and move on rather than rebuilding this thing every year? So when you look at a business, is that how you see the business is is this series of steps and processes and systems? And that's how you start digesting what's going on? Or were you going around to people in the company and just like picking their brain? Hey, what's going on in your world? How do you do it? Like, how did you start to put all that together? Because I asked that not as a loaded question, but I think it's it's lost on a lot of people, especially business owners. They can't see the fire in front of them, but they're not willing to kind of look at what's really going on. Yeah, I, well, you know, both of those are true. On the outside, yeah, I was picking people's brain, but I, I always view it as, as a system. And that that's not the only way to view a business. It's not necessarily the right way. It's just the one that I view it. So for me, it's a machine with lots of levers, lots of buttons, lots of pistons. Some of those break down. Some of those are made out of bad material. And so the goal is, how do I build the best machine possible that can, you know, whatever this business is outputting? You can view business as a game, which is probably more how my dad viewed it. He viewed it as this as this psychological game that he loved to win. Um, so he had different priorities. He did things a little differently. Um, for me, I was more, you know, let's just get a constant flow that's growing at a constant rate. Let's minimize how many drops and dips we have so that we're never rebuilding stuff. And for him, it was about the deal. It was about the negotiation. It was about the win of the quote. Again, neither right or wrong. It's just I'm a very systematic thinker. So for me, that was kind of what I always focused on. So what did you do there? So like what systems did you implement? What things did you change? And how did you know to do it? Yeah. So the first thing that I, I really honed in on, and I found this to be a problem everywhere, and nobody really wants to deal with it or even notices it, and that's communication and information. So a lot of small businesses, if I say this, might think about it now. But probably 30, 40% of your time is spent looking for documents, sharing documents, gathering data from customers or suppliers, doing something with that data, none of which is actually helping your business. It's just this kind of in-between time. And so systematizing, hey, here's how we communicate as a company. Here's where we store these documents. Uh, let's create better search tools to find those docs, that information, that supplier data that we need, pull up that old quote. So it was really about instituting, um, like we put in something called NextCloud, which is basically a self-hosted Dropbox. We started tracking a lot of our flows in Trello, which is a free Kanban board that you can assign emails and documents to. And it was just basically saying, hey, from now on, this is how we communicate. We don't, we don't just stop by somebody's office and drop all this knowledge and walk out. We officially submit it through Trello and created this, this systematic way of communicating. Uh, and we did it on based on a few different principles. One, and, and this wasn't all at once, right? This was evolved over time, but everything's done written. So we don't make decisions unless we we write them and submit them. We kind of cover them and, and discuss them written over Trello or over Slack, whatever it is. And then we capture that. And then what we have is a historical uh, way of looking at, hey, here's what happened. Here's why we made that decision. As you hire new people, you have this whole backlog of, oh, they had this problem two years ago and here's how they solved it. Async and remote. So we ran warehouses. So obviously we couldn't be a remote company. Right. But as much as possible, we created remote practices. The goal wasn't to be remote. The goal was to make a flexible operation that no matter what happened, nothing changed. So for example, I was flying to Mexico. I was flying to China. My father was flying all over the country. If we made it so that our meetings were all done over video and decisions put through, you know, whatever Trello or Google Docs or whatever we use, whether he was sitting in his office 
uh, in Syracuse or whether he was down in Mexico, it was the same. He was yeah. he was getting on a computer to have that meeting, even if the person he was having it with was two rooms over. By just creating a systematic way to communicate, nothing changed no matter where you were in the world. And we had a global operation of 2,000 global suppliers. So we were a small company that was everywhere all the time. And so by doing that, like, what did it do to the business? Did it eliminate a lot of costs? Did it allow you to scale? Were you selling more? Like, what was the benefit of, the, of implementing all that? The, for the communication information, it was lowering friction. So yeah. no more, where's this file? I'm just going to quote it because I can't get the information. Uh, frustration in trying to share documents. We had a quality lab that generated a lot of data. We had a shipping department that generated a lot of data. And sharing that, I mean, you had people that weren't as tech savvy. So you'd, you'd have, you know, printed Excel files that were then scanned into the computer and emailed to you. Just changing how that that kind of flowed lowered a ton of friction and allowed us to get to the real work, which was sourcing quality and, and selling. Okay, so speak to this a little bit, because when I picture a fastener business up in Syracuse, New York, no offense to the folks in Syracuse, but I'm, I'm thinking probably a lot of older folks, not as tech savvy words like Trello, probably throwing them off right out the gate. How did you implement the culture to adopt the methodology? Cause I think where a lot of small businesses get it wrong. And, and I talked about this yesterday was the best software in the world is only great. If you have a team that can digest it and use it. So I talked to business owners they're like, oh, that software sucked. It's like, no, you just don't have a team. How did you get the whole team on board to like use this? Like, what was your process for making this a successful implementation? Yeah, that's a great question. One that my 20 year old self probably could have thought about a little more. Um, at first, I, I didn't think about that. Yep. I just went in and said, hey, this is the ideal way to do it. Let's let's implement it. And then you get like that real world training where pretty much the guy's like, you know, I'm not using this too bad. And, and what am I going to do? And I've talked about this a lot. The best system is the best system that people will use. And so for me, I found that that was low intrusion, especially for non-tech savvy people. Copy and sharing is highly intrusive to somebody that is not, you know, tech savvy, that's barely using email. Uh, And we had people like that as we grew. So the, the question was, how do we capture this data as they do their regular job? And so you end up with not an ideal system, but a low intrusion system. And then once you get them on there and they're like, oh, this is easier because as I do X, Y, and Z, which I do every day, now we have all this data and I can go, you know, research it in the future and get my job done better. Once they have the aha, it's easier to then move into ideal systems. So I think what it is, is start with the best implementable low intrusion system that you can come up with for whatever you're trying to fix, get some buy-in, you know, let them see that's going to help. And then you march towards whatever your ideal is. So that's usually probably around 40% of what's possible, but do the rest over time. There's no rush. So you started when it was 2 million. And then you said y'all opened up a business in Mexico. Is that just an extension of the fastener business with a Mexico location? Or is that a new business altogether? It was a little bit of both. So by this time, it's like 2015, Alliance no longer existed. Chess Group, which was our custom division, was really all the business. Okay. Um, custom components grew, margins were higher. Uh, we really found a niche that not many people were serving. And so we were doing really well there. And fasteners were down to probably 5% of our business by this point. We had a customer, a large customer, say we're moving to Mexico. In the 90s, this happened a lot before I was there, back when my grandfather uh, ran it. And my dad was the sales guy and he said it, it, it stunk, right? You saw GE leave Syracuse. So it used to be a lot of manufacturing carrier was, was all from Syracuse, um, air conditioner. So all these people moved down to Mexico. And at the time it was like, well, see you later. So now 
it's happening with one of our largest customers and and me and my dad are talking and he's like, well, I guess we're losing another one. And, you know, I'm, I'm a stupid, you know, 20 year old. I'm like, why don't we just go down to Mexico? And uh, <laughs> he just looks at me and he goes, I don't know if I have the energy for that. And I go, well, let's fly down. And so we flew down and we just saw, uh, they're called maquiladoras. They're basically U.S. companies that move south of the border for the tax benefits and the labor benefits and then ship back up. We saw them everywhere. Talked to a bunch of people at some fastener shows. Ah, the service is horrible. We can't get anybody to call us back. And we're like, man, if we come down here and answer the phone, we might be able to just pick up a bunch of business. A little harder than that. That thesis is still generally true, but (laughs) there was a whole other government and tax system and and, uh, culture system. But so basically the idea was if we can find a warehouse small enough and a crew cheap enough to try this, it'll be a break even. We're losing the customer no matter what. So if the margin from that customer can pay for this, it's a free option. And then we'll try and get more. So um, broke the news to my pregnant wife. Hey, we're moving to Mexico. She's like, what? <laughs> <laughs> and so we moved down there. And uh, I remember I'm kind of an adventurer. She, she's not so much. So we got there. We, I had, All I had was an apartment. It was empty. We walked in. And I was like, let's do this. And uh, she's like, where's the furniture? Like, uh, She was mad. How are we going to get groceries? And for me, it was a challenge. But uh, it was a fun year and a half. We, when I left, we had a team of four. We had a guy managing it. We had a couple more customers. and. Uh, yeah, so we ended up doing it down there. Back to your question, we were thinking it was going to be custom components. And we were going to keep the margins. The nature of the business down businesses that move there are very high production, which means they're trying to lower costs. So they yeah. were standardizing their parts. So we ended up doing a lot more fastener business down in Mexico. Okay, but it, but it, eventually when you went to sell, those were two. Like we it sold was all yeah. together. Yeah, they, it was owned separately. Me and my father owned that one, and so. It wasn't owned by Chess Group, yeah. Uh, but yeah, we sold that as a whole package, and I think that was part of the reason that they wanted to buy us was it allowed them uh, an easy footprint to start to do international expansion. Okay, let's talk about China. All right. So you went. You also lived in China. Yeah, yeah. But talk briefly. about Mister um, Mister Mister Joe, Mister Joe, the, <laughs> and then I want you to talk in some of the notes just about what moving there and learning there taught you about operations and and your whole view of the business world now that you've seen it from China's perspective. My dad sent me to China. He basically said, Mr. Joe's inviting you over. And who's Mr. Joe? Okay, yeah. You want me, you want me to tell the, the yeah. whole story? <laughs> so, you don't have to tell the whole thing, but we got to give a little bit of background. Yeah. It's a great story. So my dad was trying to figure out international stuff before I got there. And I think he kind of got burnt out and stopped. When he took over the business, it was 2003, end of major recession in in the U.S., and he was trying to figure things out, and he just couldn't. All the fastener shops were getting acquired, and it was just squeezing out all the players, and he's thinking, how am I going to survive? So he tries to go start going overseas to get the arbitrage on the price, trying to figure it out. Uh, Like I said, he's an entrepreneurial guy, so he's, he's, he's hashing it out. He placed an order. They basically said, thanks for the order. I don't think we can make it. He had already put the down payment down. And they said, you know, we'll try and do better on the next order, which is very China. If you deal with them, just like, oh, sorry, we try better next time. And it's like, (laughs) whoa, 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 whoa. There's not going to be a next time. Um, So he's stuck. And somehow uh, this guy, this engineer who owns a consulting firm, deals with a lot of major companies, Mercedes and, and large oil companies. He gets a hold of my father and says, I found out what happened. If I can get your money back. I mean, at the time, 13 grand, it was a ton of money for what the margins on the, on the company were making. Can I get this business that you're trying to do? It's, my dad's like, sure. So lo and behold, he gets the money back. He makes the part and, uh, and then invites my dad over and 
the birth of a friendship. And so this guy, Mr. Jifong Joe, is a savant engineer, all different industries, been in it for, for 50 years, taught himself uh, in the dark in the back of a factory. And just, uh, I mean, a literal genius, one of the smartest people I've ever met. And so socially, not fun to be around. Uh, very you know, embarrassing. It's just he's kind of not, doesn't pick up on social cues. So um, he uh, he invites me. Johnny suffers from the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> oh, man. Um, so, yeah, he invites me over. And, and my father says, I'll pay for your hotel and whatever expenses you incur. I think this would be a really good opportunity for you to go over and learn. And so uh, off I go over to Nanjing, China, and Mr. Joe takes me to seven major Chinese cities to start, kind of gives me the tour and the whole time explaining to me about the people and the culture and the history. And we go to, you know, uh, Shenzhen and we go to the electronics market. And this is a very industrial tour. This is not so much a sightseeing tour. Um, Mr. Joe doesn't have time for for the sightseeing. (laughs) So we're, you know, he, he's making me look at every single chip on the electronics market in Shenzhen, which is this giant building of just computer parts everywhere. And then we go to uh, Ningbo and we start walking through casting factory after casting factory. And every time, what did you learn? What did you see? What did you notice? Did you see the people stealing? Did you notice that they were, you know, the, I can tell you which buyers are making an extra profit on the parts and no, I didn't notice that Mr. Joe, I don't even know what these factories are making. Like I, I'm yeah. new here and, uh, <laughs> So yeah, I did that and then uh, came back to Nanjing where he made me study Mandarin and kind of taught me the what he calls the Chinese way and helped me to better communicate. And I, I think the one thing I took away from that is making things is so much easier than I ever thought. Like once you go over there and you see that there's a factory for everything and that there's a market for everything and you can build an iPhone if you want by going to the Shenzhen market, all of a sudden your whole world opens up and you're like, you can literally make anything really easily. And then you come back and you just, with confidence, I was going to large companies saying, I, I can find that for you. I can make that for you. I can assemble that for you. No problem. Give me two weeks. I can quote that. And uh, yeah, Mr. Joe opened up my whole my whole industrial world. Was that because of your relationship with Mr. Joe that you had that confidence that you could ec- actually execute or did he introduce you to folks along the way that now were your relationships? Yeah, no, I wouldn't say it was directly because of him. I tried not to go through him because yeah. it always ended up being more of a lesson of, of why I <laughs> he was very much like a Chinese father. So every time I tried something, it was, there had to be like a lesson in it. And sometimes yeah. I just wanted to get the business done. So I, I tried to stay away from actually sourcing through him. It was what he showed me and what I saw in China that, that blew my mind as far as what, what could be done and how easy it really was. So if you were giving, if somebody's listening, that's thinking about doing business and it requires China, like what's the playbook for some, you know, green very naive business owner in America that needs to start relying on China. Like, how would you tell them to go about bridging that gap? Yeah, I mean, stepping into it is is number one, just having the courage to say, I'm going to try and figure this out, being very careful what you pay up front. There's some things that are up front. There's some things that aren't, but th- there's really no, there's no secret to it. It's, I mean, you can go on Alibaba and you can find six people and you ask them for samples. There's red flags and it's hard to articulate, but there's red flags and emails, red flags with quotes that can show you, hey, this isn't, they're not really making this part. They just got this somewhere else. They don't include key information that you know that they need to make this part that anybody who was quoting would include. It's not that hard. Uh, You can call up sourcing agents in China and say, I'm looking for this kind of casting. They can show you. Uh, one One of the key things we did at Chess was we would build a capability and then we'd use that capability to sell to new customers. And then the new customers would ask us something we didn't know how to do. We'd build that capability. So it was this cycle. That was kind of how we grew. So 
what you do is you start to you start out with five you know casting vendors that maybe Mr. Joe showed me. And then each time you quote a new casting vendor with one you already have, you, yep. know, you start to build, oh, the prices are roughly the same. I'm going to buy half from this guy and half from that guy and test out a new vendor. And you just keep working that testing out a new vendor. So I'd say start with one or two core suppliers and then just start slowly. Every time you quote a piece, whether it's plastic injection or whatever, try a new supplier, try a new part, see if it comes in with the same quality. Sometimes you get surprised, lower price, better quality. Uh, and that goes for the UK, Mexico, Canada, anywhere we sourced. We, we, we did a kind of a risk mitigated approach to branching out a little bit each time. You said the Chinese way. He taught you the Chinese way. <laughs> What's the Chinese way? Uh, the, the Chinese way is very transactional. Yeah. So that's why you got to protect because they're not thinking long term. They are more now. I've seen a change over the last 10 years. But when, when I first got into it, it was very transactional uh, in nature. You're, they're not thinking long term relationship like that joke I made earlier. Right. We, we get better next time. <laughs> I mean, that's a classic line. You, you hear you get that in emails all the time. And so just knowing like they're pro- they might burn me and they don't see anything wrong with it. So you can't see anything wrong with it, right? Because otherwise you're just getting angry because of your cultural approach to business is really what it is. And so you got to drop a lot of the cultural like, well, this is how business is done. Well, no, it's not. It's done like that in the US. Yeah. In China, it's done a different way. It's very transactional. You do your best. And if it doesn't work, oh, well, you wash your hands of it and you try on the next time. So once you get that, you start to put different risk measures into, into place. You start to communicate differently. In China, communication is almost like, like here we preempt on the customer, right? Here, you're, here's your shipment. It's getting ready. Oh, now we just shipped it. Oh, here's your tracking. Like everything, you're just getting blasted with notifications. In China, you're not. So if you just assume like, oh, they'll reach out to me if there's a problem. No, they won't. So we created automated emails that would kind of go out when we were expecting a shipment to go out to say, hey, uh, is this still going to be on time? Uh, has anything changed? Were you able to make it how you said you're able to make it? So it's just this constant follow-up. And then again, having a system where you collect that. So if I'm not working on it, or I'm traveling, uh, the quality guy or the, you know, the purchasing guy can look on that and see, oh, Josh reached out and here's what they said. It's going to come in different. I got to adjust my inspection plan or, you know, whatever. So it, it was just creating the systems to be able to handle the, the different communication styles and methods. Do you ever outgrow that way of thing? Like, like I'm assuming it, if they're, if there's, you know, you're working with Apple or something. Apple doesn't get the same treatment of like, well, might come in or might not. Or is it like that's top to bottom, doesn't matter how big you are? Yeah, no, I, I think it changes. I think the bigger the company, the more integrated with uh, North America. Yeah, that changes for sure. I, I mean, like the Apple people have Americans working in the factory. So I, and I've been in a few of their factories, not Apple's, but the supplier factories over there. And it's very different. We were filling a niche where we were taking what are called C items. So these are going to be like fasteners. They're going to be small. You're going to buy 100, 200,000 a year, maybe a million. You're going to be able to hold a whole box on a shelf for the whole year. And that's going to be, you know, $60,000 in profit. So yeah. we want a warehouse full of these parts. They're called C items. They're not the electronics. They're not the major components. People aren't paying attention to them. So Apple, you know, they're making key A-class components over in China. All their attention is there. Our goal was, hey, we're going to find the factories nobody else can find, the one that's that don't have websites. We're going to slowly just network with our suppliers to find out who other local suppliers are. And then we're going to go there. Their prices are going to be cheaper. They don't really know North America. And we're going to be that bridge. We're going to bridge between the, the sub-Chinese culture manufacturers who don't know North America and the North America manufacturers who, you know, they may be sourcing their A and B class overseas, but the C is just way too much work. It's yeah. not worth it. That's where we came in and we had a saying internally, 
you know, the parts we sell are the garbage parts everywhere. And we love that because nobody's paying attention to them. Yep. All right. I want to flip back to you eventually sold the business, but we talked for at length about the conversation you had with your dad about, are we going to sell it? What price do we need? What? And then you kind of work backwards into prepping for the yeah. sale. So walk me through kind of that decision to sale and like what you did to prepare the business for sale from an ops perspective. Yeah. So at at some point, my dad didn't want to work anymore. And uh, the question was like, was I going to buy him out or something else? And it just for a lot of reasons, it looked more and more like selling was going to be the right move for chess group. And so for a while, I did the teaser. You know, we had it, we were marketing it out. We had people coming in, putting offers. None of the offers were high enough by my father's standards. And so, but he wasn't changing the business at all. He was running it very much like lifestyle. So it, it was a very great business. It brought in great money. They were able to pretty much do what they wanted. You know, why change this thing? And so there was a lot of, you know, back and forth in me. I want to grow it. I want it to be run like business. I want to streamline that cash flow. Uh, I had a lot more I wanted to do. Some of it I was able to do down in Mexico, no problem. And I wanted to bring it up to, to Chess Group. So there was this tension kind of building as he's not as I'm not being able to buy it, he's not able to sell it because of the offers aren't coming in. We finally have this discussion down. I remember in Mexico and Starbucks, uh, we were working on the op down there. And uh, I, I had <laughs> wrote out this whole page that I didn't want to you know, mess up. And the, the gist of it was, hey, if we want to sell this, we need to run it differently. We need a track record of it being run differently. And we need to use that track record to get in some serious offers. Like the offers aren't coming in because the balance sheet income statement look like a lifestyle business, right? And so that was cash flow optimization, that was margin expansion, and uh, and that was just good old sales growth. And so basically said, if we can run this thing to optimize cash flow, this is going to look way better because right now you can care less about cash flow. You're trying to hide cash flow, basically. Yeah. Um, and so we went over it and we worked backwards. What is the company that fetches a really high multiple? Uh, so we're we were a distributor at heart, and that's you're talking three to four x on that we ended up getting 7x on, on our business as a distributor which we were happy with and uh the question is what kind of business gets that and then working backwards so what we came up with was first of all cash flow optimized uh reducing expenses raising revenue focusing more on high margin parts not taking every type of business that came our way focusing on the customers that we do really well with uh it came down to tech enablement so uh, tech isn't the answer but it can help boost your, your margins. Specifically, we focused on supplier automation. We focused on inventory optimization. We focused on our communication platforms. So basically, how can we communicate? How can six people run a much larger division, a much yeah. larger company? And so everything was kind of focused on that. How do we, and I, I call that operational leverage a lot. So how do we um, lower the cost to service uh, the next customer, the marginal customer? And a lot of that comes down to communication. It comes down to automation. It comes down to making the right decision, turning down business, pulling in higher margin. And before you know it, we went from, I forget the numbers exactly, but I think it was 800K in, in EBITDA per employee up to 1.5 EBITDA per employee. So wow. almost doubled it over the course of two years while um, doubling sales over yep. those same two years. So now we look way better. We're tech enabled. We have a massive margin expansion through operational leverage. We have more customers. We're doing more business with them. Uh, just went pedal to the metal for two years. 
And now this business looks very different. And between the EBITDA expansion, um, the cost reduction, the optimization tools that a larger company could take and put across platform ended up getting a, a pretty good deal. Okay, so we're going to kind of like dive in for a while on just small business ops kind of 101. So you hear all these things, what you just said, and there's a lot of folks who'd be like, well, yeah, everybody should do that. Uh, that makes sense. Why isn't every, why does every small business, let's start there, like not do these things? Is it they don't know that they exist? They're lazy. They want it to be lifestyle. Like from your perspective, why is this not happening more? Because in our kind of Twitter world that we've met in and and you, you there's this whole like cohort of young, like savvy tech enabled future business owners that are looking at businesses like this and going, man, I'm going to wrap myself around this business and totally change it. So why does it not happen at the degree that we think it should when what you just explained seems so obvious? So there's a lot of small businesses, right? And I'm sure it's different across the board. I mean, and we're kind of in a bubble on, on Twitter, I think. So first of all, I don't think, I think there's going to be a lot of down and out businesses soon because I don't think tech is really the answer. I think it's, it's uh, a tool that can solve part of it, but I don't think it's the answer. Uh, I'll give you a clear example, and, and this will hopefully answer your question. There's a company I know of that is doing deliveries, right? And I was talking to the owner and he's like, yeah, we do deliveries. You know, I love, I love my people to be able to talk to the people we're delivering to. It builds relationships. I'm like, yeah, I agree. And they send their people out. They count parts. They check everything. Then they come back and get those parts. Then they go back and deliver them. They do weekly run buys. So the problem there isn't tech or no tech. The problem, in, in my opinion, is utilization of resources. They have these people that don't need to, like, if you could automate inventory on site, tech solve that problem. And then you just have people drive by and start to visit those people and start to build the relationships. So what that looks like in numbers is they basically have a person who can handle about five places a day because he's going back and forth. He's picking. You can make it so you do all your picks on the weekend or all your picks on Monday. You deliver everything on Tuesday. You can use easy, almost free scanning software at all these sites. And I know that we did this. You can even use consignment so that it's on site. And, and then, so the, the only part that tech plays in all that is just helping you get data. But the strategy is taking the machine and reorganizing it, saying, hey, we don't need to have them go there and then back and then talk to people. Have him do all of his visits on Wednesday, all of his picking on Monday, all of his stuff on Tuesday. You don't have two more days. And you can handle a lot more than five deliveries, five site visits, and five picks in one day. So now you got one guy who can handle probably double the business without being overworked just by reordering how things are done. And when you get into it, a lot of it is just uh, stasis. It's just, this is the way we've always done it. Didn't even think about changing it. So I don't think it's a purpose, like we don't want to go forward. I think it's just, oh, we've always had the guy go, come back, go, come back. And then just being able to look at it from the machine mindset of saying, well, how can we get the most out of this person? Right. You know, not, not to break them, but to, to just say, hey, why are you doing this route three times a week? Just do it once and do them all at once. Is it stasis usually because the employee base is maybe nervous about coming to the founder saying there's a better way? Or is the culture just kind of built around like, this is how we do it and we're always going to do it? Because again, that seems so obvious. So I actually, I don't think it's, my experience is that it's not the employees. The employees are often frustrated. It's the owner not in the middle of it, right? It's been maybe 10 years since they did a delivery and they're just busy with looking forward or just lifestyle. Uh, and so why, and then, and then it's risk. It's risk from that point. 
I don't want to make a change. Everything's working. Cash flow's coming in. Why make a change to make his life easier? Like I pay him to do these deliveries. I, I don't care if he has to do this. So they don't care about growth enough. They don't want to risk changing anything. And what I found, I really found it when we got bought out, uh, is that customers are way more adaptable than people think. You know, everybody's afraid to break the customer. Oh, you know, if we make one little change, they're going to leave. Probably not. One of the things that we really had a hard time with at Chess was saying no to one of our top 20 customers. If they asked us to do something, even if we didn't want to, we felt like we had to say yes. And we were always afraid we we're going to break the customer. Before we got bought out, we started making changes. I started, I just started asking and I'd get some kickback, but then when we did it, they would love it. And I realized like, oh, this kickback is just a natural reaction because customers have employees too, and they don't want to change things. Yeah. The real eye opener was after we were bought out, uh, the, the, I worked for that company for about a year and there was a couple of times customers said, you know, Hey, we want this. And, uh, the company's like, no. So I went back. I was like, Ugh. Uh, no. And they're like, okay, thanks. And I'm like this whole time. <laughs> so um, I think a lot of the stasis is just uh, not wanting to take risk, being afraid you're going to break your customer and not realizing that the world is much more malleable than, than you probably realize. Okay. So kind of like continuing. So you do a lot of consulting and I, and I, what I want to get out of the next like 15 or 20 minutes is like, the low hanging fruit that you're looking for when you're going into these businesses. And maybe we can start with what type of businesses do you kind of specialize in looking at or thinking about, or is it generalist across the board? Yeah. Anything with a lot of systems and processes documented or not is, is kind of where I'm, I'm good. I'm also good with inventory businesses. Okay. So I really like older traditional, not good in retail, not good in e-commerce not good in capital firms. Yep. Um, it's a whole different beast. Yep. So I, I don't pretend to be a pro there. I'm also pretty good below 20 mil okay. um, in, in, in sales, probably below 10 to 10 EBITDA, if you were to pick that, below 50 employees. Above that, I don't have a ton of experience and stuff changes fast. So I, I realized that when I got when we got bought out, I was a put on leadership with 150 mil and I, I kind of joked about it recently, but stuff that I thought was a joke, I was like, this has no purpose at 150 mil with 250 employees. You're like, oh, this has, this has a serious purpose. Um, so that's the type of business that I, I, I like to go into that I feel like I can add value to. Um, as far as what I look for, it, it's hard to say. It comes from just experience, but some of the low-hanging fruit where I get their first ideas is where are they not using capability and capacity that we could farm out? Where are they building capability? What's that mean? Like where you could hire a third party to do it? Uh, no, other way around. We can we can sell it. So uh, I'll give you a chess group example. We built a multi-million dollar lab. We were only using it about 40% of the time because we had really high-end equipment only for a few parts. We could turn that around and start a third party lab and start doing just quality analysis where we didn't buy the part. That helped us a ton because people sent us parts that we didn't sell. Then we could quote them and say, oh, by the way, we can also sell it. So you just start to build capability and use that capability to sell new things. A lot of companies have really neat capabilities, but they only think of themselves as doing one thing. And so they just get stuck on that one thing. So I try to go in and say, hey, you guys are really good at X, Y, and Z. You could take that and sell that as a separate service. Market expansion, uh, adjacent markets is probably another way to put it. So... For example, we did we did uh, mostly metal parts at Chess. One opportunity I seen a lot of different companies is for us. It was we went in plastic and rubbers. It was a little different. It was a little risky, but you just do it one at a time. You slowly move over. Lots of companies have adjacent markets that they can go into. If you're doing billing uh, for medical, you can bill 
easily for a lot of other kinds of companies too. I think construction is a great area to go into building because it's it's kind of a mess in a lot of the smaller and mid-sized oh, yeah. firms. Um, so yeah, looking for adjacent markets, looking for how they're using their resources, kind of that delivery example I gave earlier. Basically trying to create an organization so that when they put the fire behind the sails, it doesn't snap, it doesn't break. Right. They can they can be flexible, they can be traveling, they can be working at different times, async, and really still the operations running smoothly. It, it doesn't feel like duct tape together. And then the last piece is talking to every single employee. You get a lot when you talk to people. And, and I, I've seen this done before and they basically just write down what the employee says. Like the employee says, oh, you know what? Um, it'd be really cool if we automated this or if we had a system to track you know, our customers in this way. And like, that's a good idea. And you write it down. Like, those aren't the, the great ideas, to be honest with you. The great ideas are when they say, I'm frustrated with something. Um, there's a lot of friction in doing this process or in, in handling this. I hate coming in early to do to do this. For me, those are the key insights because that shows where there's friction. And for me, running a or building a successful operation, it really comes down to lowering the friction for the employees and lowering the marginal cost of serving a second customer. If you just focus on those two metrics, you're going to unearth, in my opinion, probably tons of ideas on how to grow that business. Are you able to do that because you can come in as in the current state as maybe a consultant or not the owner? Like, I guess what I'm getting at is collecting that information's obvious, but to some people, again, they've had it in their head, but they, they don't have a safe place to kind of bring that forward. How do you kind of create that safe place to bring the operational challenges forward? For the owner or for the employees? For the employees. Well, first, I'll tell them I'm not here to change anything. Yeah, I'm, I'm here to learn. Beginner mindset. I mean, I don't I don't think of my you used the word guru earlier. I don't think of myself as a guru. I don't think of myself as a pro. I think that one of my powers, if anything, is I'm curious. Like yeah. I, I'm genu I'm genuinely interested in how you do your job and what you like about it and what you don't like about it. Yeah. And then I genuinely want to make it better for you. And so you don't talk about your ideas with with people like I I rarely talk about my ideas. I'm writing them down. But I'm just asking them questions. What do you like? What don't you like? What would you change if you could? Basically, the same thing tech companies do called customer discovery. I'm just doing that with every employee. And when they start talking about the Excel sheet, I'm just as excited about, you know, the minutia of how they're rearranging their Excel sheet as I am about adding 10% on the gross margin for the owner. And again, it just comes down to I love every piece of that machine. I don't care if it's the piece that nobody sees or not. I just, I really get into the machine. So I think for me, it's just curiosity. I know I'm not giving you the answer you want, but um, it, it's just about, for me, just digging in and really just parsing out, here's all the friction points. And then taking that back, you know, into my office and sitting there and saying, you know, if this was mine, how would I, how would I make this? So either they didn't have to do it or it was fun to do or we did it automatically while they did something else, just trying to rearrange it for them. And in small business, a lot of times it's like whack-a-mole. So how do you prioritize once you've kind of gotten a good understanding of, you know, how the machine is working currently, how do you prioritize like what you're going to tackle first? Sometimes I ask the owner, but for, for me, there's three things that really every business should have. And if you have this, it lowers the amount of work I need to do or that you need me for. And so these are, I, I call them meta systems. They're really just feedback systems. So if you get into systems theory, every system has feedback loops that feed back into the beginning of the system that help modify and change it. Uh, one of the things I'm really big on is building operations that are low risk. And this comes back from my finance days. I used to do a lot of optimization. The more you optimize a model, uh, it does really well for a while and then it crashes every time. And I remember running, trying to run these algo portfolios and we could crush it for two to three years and then it would drop off a cliff and we would do back testing. And finally, Why? 
uh, because you're over-optimized for whatever regime you're in. So you're, you're optimizing for what does well then, but the markets are so changing over time that always changes. So you need meta systems to give you feedback on when that regime is ending. Problem is you don't know what aspect is ending, right? Like if you look at all the recessions for the last 120 years, you could see they all, they weren't all the same. They all had, you know, one started in housing, one started in a railroad, one started because of inventory, one started because of debt. Like you can't just measure everything and think that you're going to be able to know where the next recession comes from or where the next regime change or, you know, when you go off fiat and how that's going to impact, it's just, it's too much of a complex system. So that just got into my mind. Oh, and then I started building systems that all they did was mitigate risk. I said, okay, I'm going to pretend like return doesn't matter. And I noticed, hey, these models, you know, they, they tick up more than average, but they never crash. So over the long run, you end up higher off because when all the other models crash, this one's going to keep ticking up. And took that and started realizing that that's really true in life, uh, the more, you know, more and more. So I call it building a sustainable organization or focusing and optimizing for longevity. How do you build a business that is going to be around for 100 years? You start to make different changes. You don't take all the business. You don't try and grow at all costs. You think, is this going to ruin me in five to 10? Is this going to be the best decision? You start to do things once and then compound them rather than rebuild, you know, like Theseus ship. You don't want to put paper boards in that ship. The whole ship's going to be paper soon. And you're going to be constantly re rebuilding that ship. Use the highest quality boards you can. And so the best way to do that, in my opinion, is these feedback systems. One of them is like an innovation feedback system. So how do you capture ideas, small and large, from the inside and from the market outside? Discuss those and do small, low-cost experiments. The idea being our organization is going to have to change and adapt to be able to survive. We know that. We don't know where the adaptation is going to need to be, but we know that we need to always be kind of thinking about it. Can't be the main focus. Day to day, you got to run your business. But how do we create a way to collect feedback from customers, from the market, from trends, and from employees that can help us replace one of those boards at a time so that in 10 years, we're a whole new ship able to float without whatever the new regime is. So I call that kind of an innovation, an innovation engine or um, an innovative feedback loop. The second one is problem solving. And so for problem solving, uh, you really want to fix a problem and have it not ever come back, right? We all, you're going to hit problems. It's going to happen. You're going to disappoint customers. You're going to have employees leave mad and probably rightly so. You're going to have suppliers say they don't want to do business with you. You're going to not be able to pay some bills. You're going to have quality issues. Like whatever your business is, there's going to be some problems that keep you up at night, turn your gut and take you maybe a month or two to get over. I still have some that I think about and I cringe. I'm like, man. Having them once is bad. Having them twice is horrible. Yeah. Like, like sitting there going, we just <laughs> did this six months ago. How could we do this again? And so being hating that feeling, let's build a system where we take these seriously, we fix them, and we kind of can, again, our organism can adapt and be around because as we get these shocks from the outside, I hate, you know, to borrow from Nassim, an anti-fragile organization, these shocks should make us better and stronger. So how do you do that? You create systems that help you avoid that. Now, on the other hand, these systems can build and build and build, and then you get so much red tape, you can't get anything done. So part of that system should be a quarterly pulling of other things that no longer matter. So yeah, so the problem-solving feedback and innovation feedback engines, I think, are huge. There's other ones. like There's a third one that I really like, which is just employee feedback. Yeah, uh, I think that's really important to hear from the inside, uh, a free, safe, anonymous space. And I think that those should be discussed, mentioned. If you put like a comment box, people put, and they never hear from it again, nobody's going to use that comment box. But if those are 
put somewhere, hey, we're thinking about it. Here's what we're thinking about it. Even if it's one sentence, it shows, hey, we care about kind of what you guys are saying. Uh, so I think um, that's really important. We used to actually use something that was anonymous feedback online. I can't remember what the tool is called, but should every business have an, an a, a way to send anonymous messages? I, I think so. You're going to get a lot of stuff you don't want, a lot of stuff that's not useful. Uh, the bigger your company is, the worse it's probably going to be. But you're also going to get some ideas and some some insights into things. What we did is, uh, so I'm a big fan of Trello. It's it's so easy to use for people that are not tech savvy. It's it, There's very little you can do to break it, and it, you can just kind of use it for whatever you want. We had one where you could just submit it to an email. The email would auto post it to Trello. And then people could comment it, comment on it in Trello, thumbs up, thumbs down, help us prioritize and rank. Then as we would work on them, we'd move over. So everybody could see, hey, they're working on this. This is the new recycling program that they're working on because somebody didn't like that we were just throwing out all of our water bottles. And you just little things, big things, but it, it gives a, a transparent way to show that, hey, it's here, it's being voted on. And we're tackling these one at a time, or we're not. And here's why, because it doesn't fit strategically or something. On most of the stuff that you've kind of mentioned, it's a lot of kind of already built SaaS tools. And 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 I know that you're kind of big into the no-code world. Let's just like dive into that a little bit. How, how should people decide what software to be on in this no-code world? Like it's almost overwhelming the amount of tools a company can use. How do you simplify that to create something that's again, kind of easier to use and solves the issue to use the same playbook for most companies or does everybody need something different? I think that world is, like you said, there's so much and a lot of them are roughly the same. I mean, whether you use Trello or Airtable or Excel, I don't think matters much. I think just using something that everybody can access from any computer anywhere in the world is really the key and pretty much that's that's all SaaS. Yeah. Um, I think the tools are can be distracting. Yeah. So yeah, it's funny. I got known as this no code guy, but um, I mean, I know how to use a lot of them. I've built a lot of fun stuff with them, but the reality is I, I come back down to like four or five basic tools. Yeah. I use them over and over. They do the job. The people use them. I, I actually can, can develop. And I find if you can't use, you know, Airtable or Trello, um, then I can just code it myself. Uh, one of the ones I am excited about is Bubble. I, I've mentioned that before that you can make anything. So the, I wrote an ERP um, with, with code. And I know I could write that same ERP using bubble, which is pretty powerful because we had a lot of customizations. So yeah, but you know, I, I think using bubble Trello glide and Excel, and then some, some like, like Integromat or, or Zapier, that's all you need. Again, there's a, there's thousands of them and they, there's some cool ones, but yeah. for most people, you just stick to the basics. Okay. How do you know what KPIs matter and what you should be measuring and not measuring? Yeah. I was introduced to a system called 40X. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. It's the four disciplines of execution. Um, I love it. It's it's simple and it's focused and it keeps the team rallied around it. And so as far as what quarterly you pick where your bottleneck is, I mean, so a lot of people think it's always the same metrics. Your business adapts, your projects should adapt, uh, and your metrics should adapt. You shouldn't just pick one and be like, this is what we're focused on. One metric for too long always causes problems. It gets over-optimized. It gets gamed. You start to have a lot of issues. So I'm big on changing it quarterly. Um, I'm also big on having a balancing metric. So um, if we're going to focus on employee engagement and what's what's the harm you know, that could come from over-engagement, too many ideas, distraction, uh, not getting our day-to-day ops done. So you might balance it with an operational metric or you know some kind of work metric just to make sure that you're not getting too far too far out. 
as far as the bottleneck part, I think that's what your metric should be. What is stopping us from growing? There's always something. Um, if you talk to the plumbers, it could be the number of trucks or the, num- the, the, the labor. It's usually not the, the leads coming in. If you talk to us, uh, it would have been our warehouse guy. It would have been uh, the number of deliveries we could do in a day. I mean, it, it changes, but there's always something that's kind of your, we call it a bottleneck, the thing that's stopping you from scaling 10x. So ask yourself, if I got 10x bigger, what breaks? That's, a, that's a usually a quick way to find your bottleneck. Well, 10x, I can't do all the deliveries or I don't have a guy to receive them. There's your bottleneck. So how do you have that guy? Now here's your metric. How do you have that guy do more so that he could receive 10 times the number of boxes? Everybody says, oh, he can't. Well, he can't the way you're currently doing it. But I call these forcing meetings. Let's say we had to. Let's say we were in, you know, enforced by law with a gun to our head. We could not hire. How does this guy get 10x the boxes in? Well, and then all of a sudden the ideas start flowing. I guess, I guess you could you could do barcoding instead of manually entering it to the ERP. And, you know, well, how do we get our suppliers to barcode? And before you know it, you've got 20, 30 ideas of that maybe 10 of them you can start to contact your suppliers. And that guy can now maybe do three to four X the number of boxes. So then the what metrics are gonna measure that is maybe parts received per 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 labor person or you know, it's just some metric that kind of shows. I always like it to be activity over resource because that's what the bottleneck's all about. So for sourcing, it might be, you know, number of phone calls per per sourcing guy. If you're, you know, sourcing these SMBs like Justin is, you know, permanently out there. It's whatever your activity is over whatever your resources is a great way. And then the fourth way, explain that again. What's activity over resource? Yeah. So, so there's a business has activities and then it has resources that do those activities. Yep. Usually the bottleneck can be measured in that. So resource, so activities might be number of phone calls, number of parts received, number of sales calls made, number of deliveries. Uh, it's 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 the actual activity. You don't normally want it to be dollar amount because I could receive in a hundred thousand dollar casting, which is one part, or I could receive in five cent fasteners, which could be a hundred parts. You want you want the number, the quantity, because the hundred parts is going to take that guy a long time. Okay, so that's the activity, and then the resource. What resource is is doing that number? Could be a CNC machine. It could be labor. It could be computer systems. If you're if you're running kind of a, a tech only firm, w- what is the resource that is allowing that? And then what is that? The, the ratio is just the metric, right? So you want to be able to get more activities per resource because resources cost money, yeah. and that's your operational leverage. How can we help more customers? Which is really more of whatever this activity is uh, per per resource. The 40x method just says, okay, we're going to make this metric everybody's problem. Yep. And so we're going to put this up top uh, in all of our minds. We're going to talk about it every week. So I'm I I hate meetings, but one weekly live meeting I think should be mandatory. People drift. If you don't, even in remote companies, people drift, and you, all of a sudden you haven't talked in three weeks, and and there just enthusiasm wanes. I like to re re up that every, every week. For me, the first five minutes was a really quick, what are you doing for our metric? What's blocking you? What can I do to help you? And then you move on. It takes five minutes. You circle the team. Uh, if they have teams, they circle their team. And it hands down. So for example, we wanted gross margin per per division during COVID. We wanted to keep our margins up as high as possible. And so we we made that everybody's problem. So everybody found a project in their own metric that contributed to that. So warehouse people were basically saying, oh, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to ask for more parts every time I do a delivery. So they were parts per delivery that they asked for. Admin had cost-cutting projects. Uh, we had sales. We had everything going. And so 
we have this North Star metric of gross margin per division, but we had uh, conversations weekly about how are, what are you going to contribute? You know, you're resourcing with better suppliers, so you're going to be raising margin there. I'm talking to our suppliers about getting overall discounts. Like everybody had something they were doing. Five minutes around anybody who's not doing something feels a little left out. The first one gets a little annoyed. The second one, and by the third week, just even out of frustration, they're like, "All right, I called you know five people." So everybody gets on board <laughs> uh, uh, with it, and it just becomes part of the culture. Like. And then the next quarter, you, you talk about, hey, what's the biggest bottleneck we got now? Well, the biggest bottleneck is we've got customers that are four hours away and it's really hard to service them. Okay, let's talk about let's talk about what that looks like, what the new metric is, and then how can we all contribute? And, uh, and then we talk about that every week for a quarter. And uh, basically, it's just whack-a-mole is perfect, right? There's always going to be a bottleneck. This is the nature. There's always mathematically something holding you back. You just keep hitting them. And you just keep growing. And meanwhile, you got your feedback systems going into it, basically helping you adapt, take advantage of market opportunities, bubble up innovations from the inside. And your business is just in this constant change. There's no, you know, oh, now we're a different business. Just I mean, the, the famous pivot, right? Like, I don't think that that's healthy. Healthy is just this slow, constant adaptation to the changing environment and markets and employees. And one of the things with KPIs, I think we might share this, is somebody has to be Ultimately, everybody works on it, but somebody has to be accountable for a KPI. So yeah. you can't just create a KPI and float it out in front of the whole team. <laughs> yeah. Like whether it's the CEO or somebody has to say like, this is a KPI and I am taking accountability. Um, and do you have a recommendation on how many KPIs should be being tracked at any one point in time at like a company level? I don't have thoughts on that. I have thoughts. I just wrote uh, an article or whatever kind of about this. And basically said, there's some basic corporate ones I think should always be tracked. Profitability, you know, for you it might be assets. Assets might be less important in a in a tech business. But there's some there's some just core balance sheet, income statement stuff that you should track. And then after that, uh, anything to do with operations that um, could change them. So uh, if you take out a lot of debt and you have debt covenants, and those debt covenants require a certain you know metric to be met, you want to meet those to make sure that every quarter you're you're good with the banks. And then below that, you have your your current 40x plan. Over over that, I think you're you're bogging people down. Yeah, data and communication is already a problem. Creating a lot of excess data and communication. I mean, these dashboards look really neat, right? Nobody looks at them. Uh, the oh, let's talk about that. You're <laughs> it, so right. It frustrates people below. Uh, you you create this manager employee issue of like. <laughs> all you're doing is looking at data all day and I'm here working and I don't have time for this. Like, stop asking me for this. No, like I see it over and over and over. Um, Why does nobody look at dashboards? And I'll tell you this, I'm going (laughs) to, I'll be honest as hell. Before we had dashboards at Fort, you know, I, I, this is like early, early on. I was probably not great to work with because I was the guy that was always like, I'd kind of knew in my gut, but I, I'd, I'd find the information however I got it. And then I would tell everybody if I just had it in front of me, a dashboard right here, I would, I'd be all done. Then that was all created. And I'm not saying I never use them, but you realize you don't use them near as much as you would have thought. So why is that? Yeah. You know, I, I think it comes down to no matter what you're going to go with what you, where you feel, I found what is useful is narrowing it down, picking one to two important things. Like I said, we just had one, maybe you have one and then you have profitability. What was your one? Uh, well, our one changed oh, all the God. time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Every, every, just, I got you. Yeah, you had your one quarterly strategic objective. And we just emailed it to everybody once a week. We had a, I built a little piece of software that basically collected it. 
sent out an email and I would write a quick thing. Everybody read the email because you go through your emails. And so everybody was aware of it. The dashboard just tends to be this big bloated tech that, you know, you got a host somewhere and there's always breaking how it's pulling in the data. I think it was big because it allowed people to, for the first time, take all that Excel data that people were manipulating and have it graphed in real time all the time. And so the thinking was like, oh, I look at this every quarter and it takes forever to do. But if I had this every day, we'd be so much better. But you're just looking at the same graphs every day because realistically, day to day, not much changes. So you're just seeing this line bump along, the pie charts staying the same. And then you just, because it doesn't change that much, you stop looking at it. So I think you actually look at it less. I think it's better to just have these quarterly check-ins and then maybe a weekly email for a real something really important. Okay, um, you're doing a deal with Rich Jordan, mm-hmm. which is going to have 10. Uh, it's going to be an intimate kind of cohort for 10 business owners. Let's just use it as like, what are you all looking to achieve and how will the course be designed and how did you kind of dream it up? The course is going to be called Crucible. We're going to start with just 10 people. It's going to be a live cohort over the internet. So our goal is to keep it small, intimate, really be able to help some people. Um, That's why we're capping it at 10. And we we both get a lot of DMs about, you know, I bought this company and now I'm having this problem or, you know, how would you go about this? Stuff that's, that's, you know, I'm not to degrade them, but pretty basic if you've been in business for a few years. And that's the problem. They just haven't. And so they buy these businesses. Some of them have personal guarantees. And as you know, you need that cash flow to keep coming in to make sure that everything's good. Um, and they don't think they realize how much risk they're taking until all of a sudden they get there, two employees leave, you know, nobody's using the CRM that they thought was going to solve everything. And they got customers saying, you know, something's changed. I'm out of here. They have like a kind of a reckoning and boom, the DM comes in. <laughs> and so um, we help. Yeah, <laughs> I've, I've had a couple of those. So Rich and I have been, you know, we we talked, we started talking a lot offline and um, we've hung out in person a few times and uh, just a really, I mean, he's he's a really great strategic mind. He's been on here, I know, and uh, he's, he's become kind of a friend. We uh, we have a lot of good jokes, um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, we went fly fishing and I, I literally hooked myself with the fly fish and he's like, yeah, I want you to give that back to me. I gave it back to him. I was all like tangled. We still, we keep laughing. I'm like, I'm just going to stick to operations, Rich. <laughs> but uh but yeah, so um, so we want, want to do something. And basically, we have been tossing around this idea of building a both a resource that had all these things that we learned. So every time we get a question, we'll create this kind of branded sheet that you can access. And then we started talking about turning it into a cohort and helping these people basically protect that cash flow. So uh, there's, there's a sub niche out there called ETA, which is Entrepreneurship Through Acquisition. And these tend to be, they, they can be MBAs who will be fine or whatever, but they also can be people that just say, hey, I want to get in on this. I'm going to buy a small local business that I know about, maybe my uncle or you know my dad knows someone. And so our goal is to say, hey, let's give you just the basic runaround on building, on growing, on stabilizing, understanding your balance sheet, understanding basic strategy, understanding how to run these ops, how to get loyalty, how to lead a team, not just be in charge. Uh, and, Li- and Rich has got a lot of great stuff on leadership. So I spent a weekend with him up in Pennsylvania. We rented a cabin. And uh, the two things I took away from that were Rich has got an excellent strategic mind. And Rich's view and history and experience on leadership is probably the best I've ever seen for somebody uh, his age. So I, and I, so the idea was, hey, you handle leadership and um, strategy. I'll handle ops and tactics, and then we'll both kind of hammer on sales because he's got the tech focus. 
uh, where you have actual techs out in the field. And I've got the inventory focus. So you got kind of two of the main types of businesses and uh, spend some time and help these people. And the goal is to build a really intimate setting, build a community, really be able to almost do this consulting for a month with them, help them get all these skills, do it a few times and start to really see what are the key 20 issues that keep coming up as we do two or three of these cohorts. And then create, like I said, those branded sheets or articles or essays or, you know, whatever they are, infographics to help everybody that's probably having those same issues. Um, so that's kind of what we're hoping to build is just this tight community. And so are you wanting business owners that are already in business or ones that are maybe thinking about going into it or you don't really care? Yeah, no, we don't care. We we just want um, right, right around that acquisition. So you could be doing due diligence about to acquire. You could have just acquired and feel out of your depth. Um, that's kind of where, where we're targeting is the ETA and the the military, which is kind of also ETA. But, you know, you're you're coming to the end of your service. You want to be entrepreneurial. And so but you just, you've been in military your whole life. Uh, what I found is a lot of the military feel like they have no business experience. They don't realize how uh, set up they really are for what they learned in the military. Like nobody showed them how all those lessons make them amazing business owners. Oh. Um, and so, you know, Rich was giving me so many stories and then he tells me, yeah, they, they come in and they help you tweak your resume so you sound better for corporate. I'm like, the stuff that you're telling me is like ideal leadership, ideal problem solving, ideal strategy. Man, I wish I went into the military because I feel like I could have got a head start on a lot of this stuff. Yep. And so we just want to help them take that, give them kind of almost just confidence, right? Like yeah. you, you, you do know what you're doing. Here's the lingo. Here's you know how to read the balance sheet. Here's the ops stuff. But you use what you already have. And you go, you you go kill it. You know, tying back to that, it's kind of what you had mentioned about uh, your father, where he was kind of the deal guy, just loved the sell. Yeah. That's how a lot of people that aren't in business think about business. Yeah, 90% of business, and I, and I don't mean this in a bad way, and you know what I mean, but it's boring. Mm-hmm. It's inventory management. It's HR issues. It's <laughs> It's getting your drive time a little quicker. That's all to sell some product to some customer. But 90% of it is boring. And so when you think about, yeah, the, the the people coming out of the military that have great tactical skills and problem-solving skills and leadership is like, okay, maybe they could sell the product. I'm not saying they couldn't. But for that 90% of things that people don't really think about if they've never been in it, it seems like it'd be a really good fit. Yeah. Um, I mean, you nailed it. Business is just consistently executing on the simple and the mundane day after day after day. If, if you like the art of the deal, you can do well you're probably better off as a salesperson than you are as a business owner. I think of myself as almost like a facilities manager where you're just checking on the machines every day. You're, you're tweaking them. This one's running a little rough. This one, you know, you're just tweaking that every day. And for me, that's exciting. I I'm very much uh, a nerd. You know, my wife uh, mocks me out all the time for, for being such a nerd. Um, But that stuff, I just love, I just love talking about the nitty gritty of, of the op, but it can get boring. I just had a conversation last night with a, with a small business owner and, they, they just kind of got into business and they're they're excited about it. And I, I said, listen, this is good. Just see, I'm going to give you a heads up. This is going to get really boring in about three months. I go, and at that point, most owners will get distracted. They'll start to look somewhere else. Either, oh, I need to get the next big customer, the next product. I said, if you can just stay with it, I promise you, your interest will come back. And when it comes back, that's when you're going to five to 10X. Because I've seen it so many times where... The person that gets distracted, they end up just plateauing at whatever that that monthly EBITDA is. But the business owner that just like 
basically says, I hate this, but I'm going to get these seven things done every single day for the next three months. All of a sudden, they just they start to get that breakthrough. Yeah. And that's when they explode. And that those are the people that you read about. And you're like, how did they get to like two million in, in a year and a half? They they made it through that three month boring as hell chasm. I won't make this about me, but I am a victim of that to the nth degree. It's why I'm uh, probably transferred over uh, the CEO role is I went through enough of those cycles that like the downtime, I just I just had to kind of move on. And I, I think you're so right. A lot of the year is not exciting, <laughs> but it makes a lot of money to be boring and just do the little yeah. things right. Okay, there's a couple things you've said and we talked about it and I thought it was great. How to ask questions, how and why. Oh yeah. Riff on that. It's, it's, <laughs> it's brilliant. And for small business owners here, this is a great way to think about asking questions. Yep. So, um, so yeah, I, I don't come from a big city, big company. I'm, I'm from Syracuse, which is not large. And I, I pretty much just got exposed by moving to Austin and then jumping on Twitter during COVID. So all of a sudden I'm talking to a lot more people than I've ever talked to before. And I've noticed <laughs> I get asked and I see it asked all the time. How did you, how did you do this? How, how did you do that? Uh, how did you grow? And people are taking exactly what you say and then they're trying to implement it. And it's like, this guy makes a million selling on, on Amazon. And you know, this girl over here started an e-com and you start to, Oh, I can do that. And then you do, uh, you know, the man who chases two rabbits catches none. Um, I saw that on a, a dry cleaning thing one day and it just, it never <laughs> left me. Uh, cause that's me. Um, and so you just realize like these people are asking the how, what they should be asking and what I've always, I realized I ask, um, naturally probably because of my father was why, why, why are, why is he making money on Amazon? Not why is he doing it, but like, why is it working? Why, why is this customer not buying from me? Why is this happening? And then you can extract principles from that. And then you can start to apply those to your own life. So I firmly believe everybody has a unique kind of step up in life looks different. It's it's usually right in front of you. It's something you ignore. It was fasteners for me. I wanted to do anything but fasteners. And uh, it was right in front of me. But that was my kind of way to get ahead in life was to join with something my father owned, right? What, what a way to skip in. Once you realize that you, the whole world opens up. And I think that a lot of times finding that is is asking why and then bringing it back to your step up in life. So for me, I, I drove to New York City. I drove to Chicago. Anybody that would meet with me, I drove to meet. Why are, why are you doing what you're doing? Why does it work? Why, why did you choose, make those decisions? And then I would bring them back to my unique place. I would implement that over in the fastener business. And so for me, a lot more, I think people would view a lot better if they stopped trying to copy the what of the people are doing and started to really copy the why and then yep. apply it to their own place in life. I mean, everybody wants to be Chris Powers. Everybody wants to be Moses Kagan right now. Everybody wants to be Nick Huber. Like, I don't like they're awesome. They're all great. Hey, I don't. Sorry. Okay. <laughs> I, I just don't. I just don't know real estate. You know, I, I'll be the first to say I don't know real estate. I'm not about to learn now. I, yeah. I went I went all in on a certain part of small business. I'm going to learn from you guys. I'm going to learn about what you're doing. I'm going to learn why Nick does things one way and not another way. I've had a couple conversations with him seen how he looks at a deal. I'm not going to copy his deal, but I'm going to, oh, I see why he financially, he, he, he made that decision. Okay. That makes sense when I see it in Excel. Thanks, Nick. I can take that back to my, my, my place now and implement yep. that. So I think a lot more actual results would get done on Twitter and, and in real life. If we started asking why, why? Yeah. I remember I, I, that stuck with me from the time you said it on that phone call that uh, we had before this. All right, let's spend just a little bit of time on you. 
what are you going to do next? You're, you're, you've sold your business. You're, you're kind of, um, and I mean this in a positive way, I'm doing the same thing. You're kind of like piddling right now doing, you have your hand in this hand in that clearly an expert on small business ops. You told me you're like, uh, you're, you know, you're a great number two, Yeah. but you've also told me your priorities have changed as you've kind of keep going. So like, what's up? Some new developments on this actually. So I've got, I've got minority stakes in a couple different traditional businesses that I've, I've helped that is kind of, you know, nice. I've got some digital properties that I don't really put my name out there associated with, never talk about them online. Those bring in some cash, but I don't really work on them much. And then I've got two, two small tech and those are what just like recurring kind of SaaS yeah. businesses yep. that are low, like easy to manage yep. okay. stuff that I built kind of for fun and, you know, put out there and Hey, what do you know? I got 150 customers paying 50 bucks a month. Yeah. Um, and then I just hire a, a, you know, an Upwork guy to make fixes and I, I don't really touch it anymore. Didn't know what I wanted to do. Tried consulting. A lot of people told me like, you'd be great at it. I, I don't like it at all. Too much, too wide and too shallow. I'm. I'm not great at managing all the stuff in my head. I'm really good at just going deep on one thing and just honing in on it. And so I'm I'm fighting my natural capabilities and I can feel it. Uh, I just feel like I'm not doing a great job, which really bothers me. Uh, so like you, like I like I told you, yeah, I'm a great number two. The CEO, the vision, the the communicator, somebody else do that. Just let me know what that vision is. And then I'm gonna quietly execute it day after day behind the scenes, and I'm gonna love that. I'm going to love not being bothered by the outside, the PR, the like, just, I don't exist. Just leave me alone inside here. Um, I pretty much did that at Chess Group. And then as we grew, sort of really leading the company, both companies, and you just deal with a lot of stuff that is not business. Uh, You deal with mostly people. Um, You deal with complaints. You deal with issues. You deal with uh, emotional breakdowns. I mean, you deal with a lot of stuff that you're like, this is not why I'm doing this. So glad I glad I was there. Glad I grew it. Um, next role will not be leader, like that kind of role. Well, not, you know, people say, why don't you start your own business? You know, I, I have, I have some small ones, but I don't think I want that. I'm actually pretty sure I'm going to be teaming up with a small aerospace company out in LA, and I'm going to be basically helping them with, with data and ops. Uh, grow from the inside. So my perfect role, I'm really excited about it. So that's probably going to be my next step. And then, like I said, I've got the the digital properties and the minority interests that I'll, you know, probably have quarterly calls and help them with stuff. But. Yeah. You had kind of said something you're good at, uh, goes 80% on something and then you could move on. Yeah. Yeah. So, <laughs> um, you know, you asked the question, like, are you an ops guy that does tech or a tech guy? That go- and I get that a lot. Like who, who the hell are you? Because we see you pop up in so many little circles and I'm, I'm just, I love diving in on something, getting to about 80% moving on. That 80% was my nickname yeah. by uh, everybody that I worked with is uh, kind of a joke. I only do 80% of something and then I, and then I leave. Yep. I just find you can get most of the, I mean, Pareto principle, you can get most of the results. So I, I do a lot of machine learning. I, I'm not able to, you know, get in on the guys who are doing autonomous driving. But what you realize is the 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 only time you really need to be 100% or 90% or above is when you're on the edge of something, the edge of innovation, the edge of science, the edge of physics. Uh, those guys, you know, and gals need to be 100%. They need to know this stuff. But as they kind of conquer frontier, a lot of the other stuff gets abstracted and, you know, the, it gets simplified. And so you can do really powerful machine learning uh, and probably learn it in about two weeks if you grab a book and just sat with yourself and did all the tutorials. So I learned coding. I learned machine learning. I, I try to learn all this stuff to about 80% because in the businesses that I'm in, 
we're not doing autonomous vehicles. We're not trying to figure out, you know, how much Jupiter weighs. We're just uh, trying to make these ops run better. So yeah, if you get to 80% of something, that's usually good enough to implement, move on. Um, which goes to another question that I saw online and I get a lot. Uh, when are you done? And when do you move on? I saw somebody post that under your uh, tweet yesterday. I think getting rid of the idea of done is huge. It's never done. That's the whole Theseus ship, right? You're just rebuilding this thing all the time. So get, just get, I'm really big on getting something up and running. Most of my stuff looks horrendous when I first start. And I know that. Uh, I built a small CRM. And at first, all you could do is enter names and addresses. And then slowly, as use cases come up, those use cases feed whatever the next thing you're going to build. And there's no reason to, I need to get this done in three weeks. There's no reason for it to be perfect before you release. And uh, this idea of experimentation, um, I think is really important in in small business and in life. Uh, just start experimenting with stuff, build stuff. Don't think that it has to be done. Know that it will never be done. Get rid of the perfectionist mindset and just start throwing stuff at the wall and seeing what sticks. Um, so yeah. Uh, and again, that goes back to the 80%. I build it 80% and then I move on. And then I know that quarterly we'll revisit, we'll adapt, and it'll slowly become kind of the full vision I have in my head. But I never build the full vision right in my head right away. Just kind of on that note, what are the maybe two or three low-hanging fruit biggest uh, mistakes from an ops perspective that most small businesses make? Is it hiring? Is it no tech? Like, is there is there a common diagnosis or it is such a situation by situation basis? Yeah, I, I would think it's it's pretty situational. I would just say re, probably if there was one that if there was if I could create a big enough category that held a lot of the main ones I see, it's how are you using your resources? Yeah, you have so many resources. So coming from finance, I very much have an ROI mindset. Why do we have this? Why do we have this cabinet? Why do we have that pen? I mean, I get down to the minutia. Why is this thing here? And and should we keep it? Are we getting an ROI on it? Um, and if not, get it out of here. And so. Some people take that mindset and then you have like this stark place to work that is horrible because everything <laughs> needs to be. I mean, we had a really nice espresso machine that had ROI. Like people were happy, like it it had an ROI. It's not all about monetary ROI. It could be about culture. It could be about morale. It could be about um, one of the things we did. We had custom powder coated all of our shelves at Chess Group um, to be our Chess Group blue. The And we had all of our boxes done in white. The idea was like that didn't really get us more customers or more revenue. The idea was when we did tours in our facility, we wanted the whole place to speak to cleanliness, to organization, and to just have like a slight wow factor. How many warehouses do these customers go in that looked as clean as ours did, that were blue shelves and then these white boxes? It just looked sharp. Like our warehouse was literally branded. And uh, we actually did have two customers on the site shake our hand. Um, for multi-million dollar business in the warehouse and say, if this is how you keep your warehouse, we want to do business with you. Because they're buying, you know, really custom components. Yeah. And so, um, you know, yet to back to your question, what, what, what are the mistakes? ROI mindset and take that to all of your resources. Yeah. Uh, one, are we getting an ROI? And, and two, are, are, are we using it right? Are we, could, could it be double or triple? People, computers, space, cars, vehicles, does a ping pong table have ROI? You know, I don't, I don't think so. I, I just don't see much. Just in Silicon Valley. Yeah. I don't even think it does. I think it's distracting. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, but there are some things like I like the espresso machine, I think does have a, a culture ROI. And again, that was our unique company somewhere else. Ping pong table maybe will. Yeah. But I think it's just really coming down to, Hey, we only have so much money in this company. And I think when you get to like three to, to 5 million EBITDA, it starts to be a little extra and you start to slack. 
but you could take that money, funnel it back in. And if you truly have a machine business, like you have a sales machine and an ops machine, you should be able to, with slightly diminishing returns, funnel 100,000 or a million into your sales machine. And it should give you 1.5 million or 2 million. Like if you if you can't do that, that you don't have a sales machine yet. You're just selling and hoping that you're going to close. Right. Um, if you can't funnel money into that machine and have it come out with a positive ROI, there's something for you to start working on right there. And then if you don't have the operational machine that can support that growth and keep delivering the same, if not better value to those customers, then you don't have an operational machine. You're just doing business as fast as you can and hoping that you don't screw up. And so again, make sure your resources are used right. You have an ROI and that you can take that cash flow and you can start to operate your machine. Yep. What's the bridge between sales and ops? Is that the COO? Is like it's two totally different yeah. machines. How do you bridge them to their so they're they're talking to each other? You know, I'm not I'm not it great. might not be a person that I'm asking. Maybe that was the wrong way to ask it, but like how do you think about those? feeding off each other when it's almost two different personality types, two different yeah. ways of doing things. So I, I see a, a full business as three machines, a finance machine, an ops machine, and a sales machine. And, and ideally, you want different people leading those. So you're, 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 you have a sales guy, like you said, it's not, it's not one person. It's probably a quarterly strategic meeting. Yeah. Um, and, a, and a good leadership team comes down to good hiring. Yeah. You want people that are working together. Um, you want your ops guy to be probably more like me, systems-minded, you know, a tinkerer, a little entrepreneurial. You want your sales guy to be a communicator, confident. You want your finance person to be detail-oriented. You put detail-oriented in sales, it's going to bog you down. You put sales over in finance or, you know, your communicator over in finance, you're going to have like great talks about the balance sheet, but it's probably going to be horribly kept. So getting the right people in those roles and then also that get along with each other and that can share ideas and collaborate, I think that's important. All right. Last question kind of on business and then um, we'll, we'll bring it home. But what happens at a $20 million business as this relates to you that you become less valuable? Like what's going on in a business like that to where your skill set you don't think is like meant for that? Yeah. So my experience is in small businesses that are adaptable and can adapt quickly. As you get bigger, you get more people. And, you know, as much as people like to say, we're going to keep the organization flat, if you keep it flat, what happens is the, the management level gets so burdened down with running the business and trying to keep up with everything yeah. that they're no longer able to be strategic. They're no longer able to really actually do anything. They're almost being bogged down by the ops themselves. So you have to start creating these middle layers. Even if you keep it relatively flat, the management team, the, the executive leadership needs help somewhere to manage that they can keep looking forward and marching forward. The second you do that, you become slightly less adaptable. You become better for longevity, which is okay, but you become less adaptable. You also have a, a new dynamic in that now we've got meetings to communicate up and down the chain. We've got uh, a structure that isn't really day-to-day -day ops, but not really in the company. They're more managing the day-to-day -day. and that different dynamic I don't know well from experience. Got I it. know it's there and I know to stay away from it because there's people out there that can really, really do much better with that. Yeah, yeah. Okay. All right. Is there a book or something that you've read that from an operational perspective would be something good to read to learn more about business ops? Um, there's not. I get that question a lot. Yeah. Uh, so when I was in finance, I read over 250 finance books, CFA 1 and 2, I went really deep into finance. And what I found was I didn't know that much more than everybody else. And I was a pretty boring guy. Uh, not just because I read a lot, because I was so not well-rounded. 
and started to really uh, read a lot of non-business, non-finance biographies, memoirs. And I've actually learned a lot from that. So again, it's the asking why not. No, yeah, not what. So um, if you go, if you look at my bookshelf, I have one side, it's all business. And I have one side that's all bios, memoirs, uh, stuff outside business. There's a lot of really great ideas, analogies. So most of the stuff that I share is one, I made a huge mistake. That's that's about you know 60% of it is just, I've made a ton of mistakes. Uh, and then the other part is, reading about wars, reading about uh, people's lives, reading about people that have overcome things and, and athletes. Uh, for me, if you if you view everything through a certain lens, you come up with novel ideas. So uh, for me, that's ops. So everything, I'm always thinking like, how could this make a small business better? It's kind of just a natural thought. And, I'm, and every business owner is like that. That's not me, right? I'm sure yeah. you're always thinking like, how does this make my capital acquisition better? Or how does this make my deployment better? You, you can't help it. So you see a restaurant and you see the way they're doing something. And you're like, oh, I like that. We could use a different version of that to make you know our customer outreach better. And so just looking through the lens. So you know, I, I get that all the time. What what books? And I usually just share like the two or three that I'm reading at the time. Yeah. But um, I think just being more well rounded and really just start looking at some biographies, some people that have overcome, that have had some great achievements, and what did they do? What, what were the what were the whys that drove them? And then translate those whys over into your world. Do you have an operational like somebody would have a favorite athlete? Is there an operator in this world that everybody should know about? No, you know, I'm reading. Uh, New Newcore. I'm reading the uh, his book he wrote, um, and the name is escaping me now. Figures, but I think Ken Iverson. Yeah. Um, really like his book and how he ran ops. Uh, there's another one out there called The Outsiders that that surveys uh, about eight different CEOs, and that that's my brand of of uh, running ops right there. Um, decentralized at the node, decision making done as low as possible. ROI on everything, low, low corporate bloat and structure. Um, so yeah, those, those two books really, I would say best encapsulate how I view a business. Yep. If you had a billboard on the, um, busiest highway in Austin and you could put anything on it for the world to see as they pass by business, personal, anything, what would you put up there? Memento Mori. What's that mean again? It means remember you're going to die live backwards is, is kind of what it's uh, saying. There's so much in life that is not business. There's so much in life that uh, we think matters and it doesn't. Like, honestly, none of the stuff we just talked about matters in the long run. Um, <laughs> Nobody's going to remember this yeah, in 200 years. Exactly. Um, and we're always, you know, so focused on stuff that uh, I, you know, I just shared a little bit about this, actually knowing that that we were talking um, is that there's so many, there's so many more important moments in life than, yep. than, than the ops and the biz. And I love the ops and biz. I, I think that's what I was made for, but there's so much more magic and miracles in the day-to-day, the people that we meet at the cafe and, and just those, I call them micro moments, those, those small intersections. That's why I'm here in person because yeah. I wanted to have a micro moment here and uh, that might never happen again. And then your whole life is these, these beautiful micro moments with kids and family and adults. So yeah, for me, it'd be a memento more. Remember, you're going to die. None of the stuff matters. Focus on what does matter and, and kind of make your legacy. I love it, man. All right. Thanks so much for uh, coming up and joining me today. This is fantastic. This is great. Yeah. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it, Chris. This was fun. Let's go eat some barbecue. Yeah. Hey everyone, it's Chris here again. Thank you so much for joining me on this journey. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, leave a five-star rating or write a quick review. Thanks again, and I'll see you on the next episode.
Chris Powers is the founder and CEO of Fort Capital LP. All opinions from Chris and guests of the Fort podcast are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Fort Capital LP. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for real estate or investment decisions. The Fort with Chris Powers is produced by Straight Up Podcasts.